change is terrifying, right, at every level to, to most people. We get kind of comfortable with the way things are. And, and I think, um, you know, that's what leads to these um, kind of reactionary forces that we see people wanting to kind of reach back. You see it in, in American politics today. You see it in, in UK politics, actually. You want to go back to kind of past certainties. Yeah. Those certainties don't exist anymore. Hi, and welcome to the Force of Nature podcast with me, Clover Hogan. Today's episode is the last for this season. In it, I sit down with James Arbib, the co-founder of Rethink X, a non-profit think tank that is expert in understanding the techie stuff that makes my brain hurt. They've developed a framework to better understand how technology will shape the future and disrupt all levels of society, from lab-grown meat to driverless electric cars. James helps leaders make better decisions for an equitable, healthy, and resilient society. In this episode, we discuss the influences that shape our lives, planning for uncertainty, and whether the system really is too broken to create meaningful change. We continue to perpetuate a mode of activism and responsibility that is broken and that does not work. The society that's being created is one that doesn't value everybody, doesn't value you if you're different. The status quo isn't values-led and, and so let's bring on that challenge. I have a whole new understanding for the strength of human. I want to be able to look back at my life and think, I did something which actually changed the world and made a difference. Welcome to the Force of Nature podcast with your host, Clover Hogan. So, James, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Um, we're going to dive right in. Now, your expertise is really in the realm of systems thinking, disruption, anticipating big challenges and how massive changes in society are going to impact us. Um, in the work that I've been doing recently, we've been researching the universality of challenges faced by young people around the world who want to take action but don't always know where or how to start. And in this early stage scoping, um, I sent out a survey to a number of my friends from different countries asking them, you know, what do you feel are the biggest kind of barriers, perhaps in mindset that your peers are facing and that you yourself have faced? And unilaterally, the single most cited challenge or self-limiting belief is that the system is too broken to create meaningful change. Um, what would your response to that be? I would agree. I think, um, but probably for different reasons. So I think, um, you know, we are, we are essentially in a, in a, a system, uh, and we use the term the organizing system, and then we use that to describe the sort of political, social, economic systems, the governance structures, institutions that kind of manage and influence society. So that, so that organizing system is really, a, you know, at some level an industrial age relic, right? I mean, this system kind of evolved out of the late medieval period, you know, through the Renaissance and the Reformation and, 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 um, you know the the early age of science, and it's still it still um, exists today, pretty much in the same format. You know the idea of of, of democracy, free market capitalism. Um, you know the kind of social contract that we have today. These are all kind of constructs that that kind of co-evolve with those industrial age technologies. But I think as a you know we're beginning to see a new system emerge, a new sort of system of production emerge. Uh, you see it in the you know in information technologies where you you have a totally different model, um, you know much more decentralized um, um, 
you know, based on entirely kind of different principles to the old industrial age model. And, and we're beginning to see that in energy and, 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 and we'll see that in, in food over the next decade or two and, and, and various other sectors of the economy. And, and, and I think that the challenge is that, that, that our system uh, is, is kind of deeply embedded. It, it kind of forms our most deeply held beliefs. I mean, the idea of kind of nation states and um, democracy and free market capitalism are kind of, they're almost the sort of fundamental truths of our age. They're not things that we question, but they, but they are essentially human constructs. Right, they're, they're, they're conceptual frameworks in some ways, and they've you know they've worked extremely well. You know, unfortunately, we don't think they're particularly well matched to this system that's emerging, and and we're seeing signs of breakdown. And I think as as time goes by and that system of production, that new system of production emerges, it's going to become increasingly less well matched. And and, and I think um, you know ultimately um, you know that system you know has to break down and be replaced uh, by another. And so where was your curiosity first sparked? When did you first become aware of the constructs to which we find ourselves beholden and perhaps the kind of absurdity of them? And when did you decide that you wanted to unpack them further, whether it was through Rethink X or before that point? I spent a lot of time you know, working on kind of environmental issues um, you know, over the last 15 or so years. And I think, I think you know, it's very clear that we have kind of serious environmental problems. But I think, you know, I began to get frustrated with some of the solutions that were suggested, you know, behavior change, policy, regulation, and so on as, as, as kind of answers to this. For me, it's, it's um, you know, those, those kinds of solutions are, are, are really kind of sticking passes. They're, they're really aimed at patching up this old system. And it became more and more apparent that actually, you know, that's not a longer-term solution. That's, that's not... Um, that's not a way to solve this. We can patch it up and keep this industrial age system going, but it's still the same model. It's still a model that's inherently unsustainable. What um, are some specific examples of that kind of like patching up that you refer to? We could very happily give up, you know, say 50% of consumption. Um, and, you know, that's, you know, a valid solution. But if we, if we give up 50% of our consumption, the social impact of that is so deep and profound. You know, the idea that, that, that we can impose that on society is, is, is you know, I, I, I think just not a, a viable or realistic solution. And, and, and more than that, actually, it's kind of, you know, at some level economically illiterate. I think, you know, if you, if you, if, if you cut consumption by 50%, the impact on, on um, you know, investment and the availability of capital in the system will be such that, you know, we'll never enable these new technologies that, that can potentially act as a solution to kind of grow and come through and, and, and allow that new system of production to emerge. And I think that's, you know, for me, that's really the challenge is that, um, that you know, say we reduce 50%, our consumption by 50%, okay, you'd push out the date at which we breach, you know, our environmental limits, but you'd only push it out by a decade or two, perhaps. You're still in that, that system. You're still adding huge amounts of, um, you know, greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. So it's not a, it's not a long-term solution. It's a, it's a, a kind of patchwork solution that actually might kind of trap us in that old system. That Why are we that, so attached to that mode of thinking, do you think, and so attached to maintaining that status quo? I think it's just the way it's always been. I mean, we've seen that in, in, in previous civilizations. The idea of the, you know, democracy or the idea of um, a nation state as deeply ingrained as perhaps the divine right of kings was in, 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 in a previous era. And, and, you know, what we've seen in previous civilizations is, is that, you know, as things begin to break down, as they reach their limits, and, 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 and you know, for whatever reasons, whether it's, you know, salinating the soil through irrigation or, um, you know, destroying the topsoil or, or whatever it might be, they, they tend to turn backwards. They tend to kind of double down on what they perceive to have worked previously. 
and and so you get more sacrifices or more priests or or more soldiers or whatever it might be but they never make the changes required what would you say the equivalent is now what are we sacrificing or willing to sacrifice well i don't think we're willing to sacrifice anything i think that you know that the idea that that you know, America might give up on the concept of America, or we might give up on the concept of democracy or capitalism or free markets. We don't see that happening. And, you know, so what's happened historically is that, you know, you've had breakdown, what we can achieve and what we can do and our, our kind of way of life has dropped. And, and, and you've had a dark age, essentially. And, and then, you know, centuries later, a new civilization has kind of found a way of harnessing technology and you know, that organizing system uh, in a better way and broken through to a kind of higher level of being. The challenge for us is, you know, how do we avoid breakdown and enable a kind of new system to emerge? Is yeah. there any way of avoiding breakdown or is it just the extent no, I th- I of think the that, I, I absolutely think there is. I think, I mean, what we have is, is, is some extraordinary technologies coming along that, that have the ability to transform society. You know, what technology does is, is they, they manipulate, technologies manipulate matter, energy and information. They're the foundations of the physical world. and and, and technologies manipulate those to do the things we want. We're now at a period where we've got technologies coming in, in energy, in, in materials, matter, essentially, you know, food and so on, uh, and, in, and in information that are, um, you know, allow us to operate at a whole different level. They're completely kind of decarbonized. They're, they're hugely efficient. It's a different model. The, the model we've had uh, essentially through the history of civilization has been a, essentially a model of extraction. I mean, that's how we term it, which is, you know, what we have to do is harness resources from as far afield as we can to feed and provide for our populations. And it's a sort of breakdown model. So we, you know, we grow plants and animals or we find resources and we break them down into, into the things we need. And what's happening with the, with the new technologies that are coming through, you know, whether they're solar or the new food technologies um, or the new, you know, information technologies, you know, we, we think of it as a model of creation. So rather than, uh, you know, breaking down materials into the things you need you start from the molecular level or the electron level or the photon level and you build up and and all the things we need for this new system are kind of available locally so we don't need to harness them from huge areas we just build what we need so it's a vastly more efficient system that we're building but it's also a, a, a completely different structure to that system we're not in a world of scarcity necessarily when we when we move into this world you know these things are all available in abundance so that sort of competitive dynamic that we've seen through the history of civilization sort of unwinds you know i see the solutions in these technologies but my fear is 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 that that um <clears throat> you know our organizing system our governance structures and so on break down before that new system could emerge mm-hmm. because that's a, it's a system that will largely be fully automated if we look out 20 30 40 years uh, and so we're going to have to rethink you know our social contract you know what we do how we kind of reward or, or spread the benefits of this system and if we try and manage that through the current system through this industrial system we've got no hope i would love you to speak a little bit more about what needs to then happen on a deeper level and you've spoken to these kind of social contracts how do they need to change so that we can create the space and the environment for these systems and technologies to emerge in a very constructive way that serves the many rather than perpetuating a very top-down hierarchical yeah. model um, which is largely based out of silicon valley yeah. um and 
flourishes on the concept of socioeconomic inequality, disparity, taking, you know, exploiting a certain group of people and resources and whatnot. I think we've seen extraordinary progress. I mean, you know, our capabilities today compared to a couple of hundred years ago are, are just extraordinary. And, and the benefits of that have been relatively largely spread. I mean, you know, the people living in abject poverty now are far fewer than we've ever seen before. Everyone, you know. Huge amounts of, of the world have access to education and healthcare and clean water and shelter and so on and so forth. So, so there has been a, you know, a huge improvement in living standards. But the problem is that, that um, you know, a lot of people have been excluded from that and we've created huge wealth in very small pockets. And I, th- I think, you know, that's a challenge of the system. I mean, you get a few big winners and, and, you know, left completely to its own devices, free market capitalism would deliver, you know, huge inequality. But it's kind of the job of regulation, of 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 of, um, of, 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 of policymakers, essentially, to to redistribute that or to to, to, to counterbalance it, the adverse effects of that. But we can only ever go so far in that process because, you know, we're in a competitive world. If you go too far, you kind of kill the incentives to progress. You need those incentives to drive the entrepreneurs. And we found that when we've gone too far, you know, communism, for instance, it's just you know, those countries that have adopted that fallen behind and, and essentially, you know, had to adopt this kind of Western model that, um, that, that that's kind of spread across the globe now. So there's a kind of Goldilocks zone in this, in this system. And, and, um, and that's worked, you know, fine to date. But I think as we come into this new system, you know, what we're, what we're going to see is, you know, if we try and manage these new technologies, you know, through the old system, we have, you know, essentially this new system is based on information. If you think that, you know, the new food system, for instance, we're going to have localized production. We're not going to have this sort of massive scale agriculture we have now. We're going to have much more localized production, but we're going to exchange ideas. So you might develop a new protein and, you know, I'll download your, you know, your protein, your idea locally and have it produced locally. So there'll be a, we think of it as a kind of network and a node, a, a global information network, but localized nodes, which are kind of self-sufficient communities that can essentially produce what they need. That's a system of production. But the problem with that system is it's if we allow people to own both the platform, the, the, the network, or essentially we keep you know information privatized, we're going to have huge inequality. And it's a real kind of winner-takes-all dynamic. You know, in some ways, we, we you know, you know, every part of the system kind of needs to change to adapt to this new reality, including, you know, how we govern. You know, do we govern at a kind of nation state level? Well, you know, to be frank, that's not really an optimal, you know, unit of governance anymore. It was in the in the industrial age. You needed kind of the scale and you needed that kind of um, that kind of size. You, you, you don't in this new system. We need sort of rules at the network level and rules at the node level, but, but not at the sort of interim level. It's intriguing when we look at widespread kind of disruption and largely you know people feeling super disenfranchised by the future and these governing governing bodies that you're referring to especially with you know greater sense of scarcity but also growing populations and and we're beginning to see people almost like opting out of the system um on some level that's you know deciding that i'm not going to vote in the next political process because i say it's too broken you know it's too messed up um on another it's it's blatant evasion of rule and regulation when um you know you have people in america with 
stupid amounts of money, basically sending it all offshore. And you have an entire economy that is operating basically like in the ether that continues to perpetuate that broken model. Um, How do you begin to enable people to opt into a different system? How do you even make that visible? Yeah. Well, I mean, I I think it's going to, it's going to emerge over the next, over the next few decades. I I I think what we've seen is, is, is that these things aren't kind of centrally planned. What you can do is kind of enable or create the conditions for that new system to emerge. We'll, we'll, we'll experiment. We'll find a, a, a winning combination that's much better matched to this, this new system of production that's emerging. And that system will just outcompete our existing system as we kind of run into the problems. These new societies, I think, will just begin to outcompete and they'll, they'll you know, essentially get ahead of of, 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 of these industrial age systems that we have now. And this is why, in some ways, that you never see you know, a, a leading civilization of one era, you know, becoming the leading civilization of the next era, because there's too much resistance to change within the, within the leaders. You know, they're just, essentially, their mindsets are too kind of frozen. They, they, you know, the, the old system's too embedded. So it's always someone on the edge, you know, who, 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 who doesn't have that kind of baggage of incumbency, who kind of tries everything and breaks through. And it's kind of, that's exciting for the parts of the world that haven't done so well out of out of this, you know, this old system. Absolutely. And I think that's sort of what we're at risk of overlooking when we talk about systems and complexity is identifying that there are key individuals within each of these institutions and systems who have not only benefited from the system being configured in that way, but actively evolved them as such. And in their minds have everything to lose from that disruption and that's when you see like power being clung onto um and so without being reductionist and saying it comes down to you know a handful of individuals we do need to create the space in that canopy for exactly as you said those on the outside or on the fringes to kind of shoot through um and to be able to bring a very fresh and different perspective and i think we've also kind of seen that in the context of young people stepping up in the face of the climate crisis um you know, when I work with students in the classroom, we do these kind of imagination exercises and and they try to imagine alternative futures and, and whatnot. And once you get through a lot of the kind of mindset barriers, um, the vision of what is possible is so much more expansive and creative and exciting. And yet doing that same exercise with a bunch of executives around a table it's you know like pulling teeth almost because you know not only are they jaded but they've been embedded for that system for so long that it's that much more difficult to be able to envisage an alternative reality a different future a better brighter future that serves the majority um and so you know you've referred to historic disruption what would you describe as some of the key kind of moments of disruption in history and what are the opportunities specifically in the positive tipping points that have emerged from some of those moments? Well, you know, whenever a new, a new kind of system or a new civilization breaks through it, you know, it's a time of, you know, immense opportunity. And at that point, the kind of the future possibilities just expand dramatically. You go from this kind of constrained system where, you know, things kind of are carrying on as, as before to one where, you know, the outcomes just explode as the potential outcomes just explode. And I think, I think we're, you know, we're coming up, you know, towards one of those points across society. I mean, we've seen that, you know, um, that kind of process happen at a sector level that, uh, you know, over, over, over periods of time. So, you know, you think as, as, you know, cars began to replace horses, for instance, in the transportation system, I mean, that opened up extraordinary possibilities. And we saw, you know, whole cities being redesigned around the car. You know, what changed. was the time frame of that transition? Well, I mean, it was extraordinarily quick. So if you look at the US, I mean, I think in, in 
1905, you had about 3% of the vehicles on the road being cars. You know, the rest were, were essentially horses. And by, you know, 1925, just 20 years later, it was over 95%. Um, I mean, you know, incredibly quick transition. And if you, if you kind of go back to the beginning of that transition, um, you know, the barriers seemed extraordinary. I mean, there, there were, um, you know, there were no roads, really, no paved roads. There was no oil industry. Um, you know, none of the kind of infrastructure you needed, no supply chains. These cars were kind of handmade. You know, they were hugely expensive. They didn't work very well. I mean, and, and you know, no mechanics, none of the kind of, you know, the, the, the aftermarket kind of stuff that you needed to make a viable industry. And, and, you know, no one knew how to drive either. I mean, there were huge barriers. And yet, you know, all those things turned out not to be kind of constants. They weren't barriers indefinitely. They all they all changed, and they all changed rapidly. And in 20 years, that whole system was replaced, and we went into this new system. Should have stuck with the horse and carriages. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's, I mean, the horses, horses and carriages had huge environmental problems. I mean, there were there were huge issues in cities. I mean, there were, there were articles projecting that, you know, by 1920 or so, you know, New York would be under, I think, 13 meters of, of horse dung. Wow. That, that, you know, you had these diseases and, and, and you know, you had carcasses lying in the streets and so on. I mean, it was it was a miserable time. And the, the car actually seemed to be the solution to the you, environmental problems of the day. You touched on a really important point because I think, as you highlighted, so much of the thinking around sustainability is embedded in that kind of mindset of sacrifice and also regressing. And so yeah. often the default is, okay, well, we need to go back to how things were overlooking the myriad problems that came with that and not appreciating the progress that technology has enabled and allowed us and the privileges that it has allowed us. So it's then figuring out, okay, what comes after that? And so in with the example of transport, how do you see that industry being disrupted? How do you see it changing? I mean, the first one and, 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 and the kind of the most obvious one is just the replacement of gasoline cars by electric cars. And we're seeing that going our pace. The, the volume of electric cars sold every year is picking up you know, dramatically exponentially and um and that and that disruption is going to you know going to continue and we're going to see um you know electric cars you know replacing gasoline cars but that's kind of a one-for-one substitution it's it, it's not you know necessarily the longer term solution but what's happening as well and this is a sort of tandem disruption that's coming a little bit behind that disruption is is um you know when you add autonomy to the electric vehicle you get autonomous electric cars and you can have what we call transport as a service the idea you don't own your car anymore you just kind of access an autonomous electric vehicle when you need it and you know the cost of that form of transportation we think is going to be a fraction of the cost you know maybe even a tenth of the cost of, of owning your own car and so um you know we think people will move over to that very quickly once it's good enough and it's you know we don't think it's that far away from kind of hitting the streets and we've already got pilots running in cities and it's not it's not too far away and when that transition happens you know we think that can happen within a decade or so you know over time we're going to you know we're going to see human drivers as just you know a huge liability hugely mm. dangerous and, and you might lose a kind of license to operate your your own vehicle um but you know the point is that this disruption could happen hugely quickly, driven by the economics, not driven really by anything else. That the, this new system is just you know cheaper and better than the old system, and that's kind of what drives disruption. You know the cost and the capability of of the, of the new technologies, um, and and that then has huge implications across society. Right? It changes the kind of the basis of geopolitics. It changes. Um, it, it changes how we design our cities, where we can live, how quickly we can commute. It changes, you know, huge environmental impacts and so on. You know, in our work, we're trying to highlight: look, we've got this this wave of disruption coming. Transport's just one of the many sectors that are going to be disrupted, and we need to rethink the whole social contract.
And how are you guys rethinking those social contracts? Um, because I think that's whenever I get the weird kind of uncomfortable feeling in my stomach when I think about exponential rise in technology, it comes from exactly that. What about all of the people who are being left behind? What about all of the people who are kind of stuck in this sort of limbo and are forgotten by the system? And I think a lot of people respond to that when we begin to speak in like these sort of like techno utopian type yeah. terms. Um, so how how do we best navigate that? And, and where is your thinking on that front? So it's a massive challenge. I mean, you know, if you fast forward, you know, two, three decades and, and you know, we think we'll see that the, the system of production largely, largely automated. Um, and with it, you know, most jobs. And I think historically what we've seen is, you know, technology's tended to create as many jobs as, as it's destroyed. There have been issues with that, as I kind of referred to, to, to earlier. I think what we're seeing now with, with artificial intelligence particularly is actually we're, we're not going to be creating those. These jobs will, will be gone. It's certainly in the way we think of jobs today. But, but you know, what's exciting is that the cost of the things we need, you know, energy, food, uh, transportation, so on, are going to plummet. I mean, they're going to they're, they're going to trend towards zero. I mean, it's going to be you know, incredibly cheap to to produce you know the basic things that we need, um, and so you know we might we might end up having a, a a society where we have a right to those things. We have a right to to you know ten thousand miles of transportation or you know two and a half thousand calories a day or whatever it might be, and 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 you know it's kind of you know a step on from the concept of a universal basic income. Mm. Now and then we'll, you know, we'll have freedom in the sense that we'll be kind of freed from the, you know, the drudgery of production, in some ways that 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 we'll be free to do far more creative things with our time, and, and you know when you have the, you know that you, you know your basic needs met, it gives you incredible freedom to kind of do whatever it is that, that that you might want to do, and that's what I mean by a kind of new social contract. Our social contract today is that we trade our labour for capital, essentially. We get paid for. For work, you know, we ha we have this in kind of incredible um, world that's potentially opening up, um, but it will mean that we, um, you know, we have to rethink, you know, things like reward. I mean, we can still carry on trying to earn more money, but actually, you know, once your once your needs are met, it it, it kind of changes your, uh, you know, I I, th I, I, I think perspective, um, in, in you know, in, in, in kind of ways we can't even foresee. But the challenge is, how do we get there? And, and and that's the issue I think we're wrestling with. Is is you know, you can see what the end state might look like, and you can see where we are today. But as we go through that, there's going to be huge dislocation. You know, before the cost of the things we need get to the point that we can provide them. I mean, a universal basic income is just unaffordable today at a at a level that allows people to support themselves entirely. So what does that mean um, as we as as we as as we as we move through that period, so you know, in some ways, we do need to patch up the old system, you know, to to to, to you know to put those sticking plaster on it to keep it alive long enough for this new system to emerge. But that's really the challenge for us: is 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 is, is how do we do with that, and how do we deal with the dislocation that we see as we we transition? Well, that's it. And the very nature of disruption is that it's hard to anticipate, right? It's yeah. hard to predict what those trends are going to look like, and critically what that bridging looks like as you've highlighted you can create the vision over there with the perfect kind of conditions but figuring out where those pockets of the future are in the present and how to kind of blow them up exponentially is very difficult so how what's your methodology <laughs> or approach for trying to do that and trying to anticipate the change that is inevitable you know we very much look at um at um 
you know, how, how disruptions have happened historically through the lens essentially of complex systems. And I think that's part of the problem that we have, we have in society today is that, that most forecasting is done on the basis of, of kind of what we would term a, a kind of linear extrapolation. So if we want to forecast the future, what we tend to do is, is look back to the past and kind of draw a straight line today and then kind of, you know, extrapolate it out into the future. And, you know, that's, you know, that, that can work when you're in a period of kind of incremental change. So if you think of the transport system, we've essentially had the same system since, I don't know, 1920s or so. You know, for 100 years, it's been this system based on, you know, individual ownership of a gasoline car and so on and so forth. And so, you know, back in, say, 1960, if you predicted 20 years ahead, you know, that, that kind of linear extrapolation wouldn't have been a bad um, proxy or a bad kind of um, estimate of what, what was to come. The problem comes when, you, you know, if you, you think out disruption moves in S-curves. You get, you get kind of a long period of incremental change and then these periods of rapid disruption. We kind of expect everything conti to continue as it is. And it's it's really a problem from science in some ways. That, you know, the way we conduct experiments is to hold one, <coughs> sorry, to, to, to isolate one variable and allow it to change and hold, you know, we hold all else equal. We hold all else constant. But, you know, the real world's not like that. You know, one variable changes, it ripples across the whole system and can change everything. And, 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 so in a, in a complex system, understanding when those periods of disruption are is kind of critical. <laughs> you know, what we're seeing is we have a series of technologies that are, um, you know, getting to the point at which they're becoming competitive with, with the old ways of doing things and have the potential to be, you know, 10x cheaper within a decade or two. And that's a recipe for the dis disruption. So we think every sector of the economy pretty much will be disrupted over the next decade or two by, by, by new products and services that are cheaper and better than the old ones. The, the real failure of forecasting is, is that you know, it kind of leaves you driving blind into the future. But if your expectations of the, of the future are, are based on a kind of linear extrapolation, you, know, you, really, you really have no idea what's coming. And you're making plans for the future based on, on, on wholly unrealistic expectations. And that's, you know, that's, a, that's a massive challenge for society. That we just don't see what's coming. And so mm -hmm. we see our work in, in some ways as trying to provide alternate scenarios so at least we we kind of see what's possible, um, and 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 so that we can begin to plan for that. Um, because right now we, we we feel that 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 you know governments, that Wall Street banks, that NGOs, you know, you name them, they're all producing these essentially linear forecasts mm. uh, and leaving all decision makers, whoever they might be, and 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 you know the you know the public more generally, um, completely unprepared for what's coming. And on the positive side, I think. We begin to see some of those exponentials um, in terms of grassroots movements, and you know, looking back at last year and the number of young people who took to the streets in protest of climate inaction and demanded more of these institutions of power, I could not have anticipated. I don't think anyone could have anticipated how much momentum was going to be created on the ground and how much of a catalyst that was going to be for lots of big businesses, policymakers, individuals within these massive organizations having their kids come home at the end of the day and say, what are you doing about climate change? You know, I, I, I don't think that could have been anticipated. And so we yeah. see these kind of like little glimpses of what is possible when that exponentiality, exponentiality is made possible by lots of people kind of coming together. And equally, as you said, you know, if our projections to the future are all based on looking to the past and being stuck within this very linear mindset, 
there is so much that is possible once we expand that open, even on an individual level, thinking about our own personal capabilities. When we adopt that kind of breakthrough thinking and yeah. we establish a goal for ourselves and say, okay, but what would that look like amplified to a factor of 10? Um, and so could you speak to that a little bit? And what you feel is the kind of mindset that we need to carry forward to not only be able to navigate and navigate this complexity and these problems and perhaps maintain the emotional resilience to be able to deal with increasing disruption, which I think is what a lot of young people today are really, really struggling with because there is just so much uncertainty about the future um, and that can paralyze us, but also how to begin expanding what we can imagine is possible and how we can begin projecting and opening up our creativity and imaginations. It's hugely exciting what's going on. I mean, I, I see these pockets of activism and 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 um, you know this this kind of generalized kind of discontent with the system actually is hugely positive. I mean, the, I think there's a, a general acceptance that you know things need to change, right? and 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 we don't quite know how. Actually, we don't need to know how. Those people who want to stop change happening and and want to keep us there, and that's always going to be there. Always has been there. Right. We can't we can't expect that to disappear. But what we can do is kind of you know in some ways declaw it. You know, make it less. Um, you know, less of an issue, and we can, you know, whatever we can do to to remove the effects of incumbency can only help, you know, the new system to emerge. And I think, you know, just keeping an open mind and just keeping curious and 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 trying to understand, that, you know, I, I guess the complex interactions across society, the fact that, um, you know, we're all connected in some ways, and the ideas spread virally, and and that. Um, you know, new new concepts and new ways of doing things can scale incredibly quickly in this kind of globalized uh, information system that we have. So we need the new thinkers and so on and so forth. But we'll also need, you know, the new models, new ways of doing things that that that, that um, you know we don't quite know what they are or where they're coming from. But we just need to try and experiment. And I, and I think that that sort of activism we see is you know a wonderful thing. And I think it's. Um, you know, it's that kind of level of curiosity and, and determination to to, to, to to try new stuff that's going to enable this new system that we're, we're talking about to, to, to kind of bust through. And it's it's about becoming sort of comfortable with absurdity yeah. and this idea that so much in our society is just a construct, right? Yeah. Our very grip on what is real and what is not real begins to slip. And... I feel that the only way to be able to create the space for that mentally, emotionally, is to sort of distill down to the core values that are universal truths, whether that is the need for love, compassion, belonging, community. And I suppose those values are what need to serve as our kind of compass as we navigate, Um, because otherwise it almost becomes too fluid if that makes sense change is terrifying right at every level to to most people we get kind of comfortable with the way things are and and i think um you know that's what leads to these um kind of reactionary forces that we see people wanting to kind of reach back you see it in in american politics today you see it in in uk politics actually Mm. you want to go back to kind of past certainties but those certainties don't exist anymore and i think you know getting comfortable with change and getting comfortable with with uncertainties kind of critical and it's a really tough thing to do because you're right how do you guide yourself through a period where all the kind of you know the 
you know, the, the signposts and the guideposts have, have fallen away. I think as as we move into this kind of new new system, it becomes possible. You're not in this kind of com- you know hugely competitive environment. You're not in a world of scarcity that mm. that, that you know you kind of have to you know exploit or be exploited or dominate or be dominated. You're in a in a whole different world here where where um, there's enough. Everything is available, energy and, and, and matter and information available in abundance, you know, in, so in every kind of jurisdiction. What do you feel needs to change about our perception and our humanism um, to be able to create the space for those possibilities? Because so much of the story we've been told about one another is embedded in a place of scarcity and competition and survival of the fittest and dominance, you know. So yeah. how how then do you recognize and ignite in individuals all of the positives and and the reality that the reason why we've been successful as a society is our ability to be social creatures and to work together and collaborate and rally around fictions and stories um how can we reclaim that narrative i think it starts by stripping back the old narrative right that that we have to realize that that these old narratives and these old structures and these old systems that we've we've grown up with and have been you know constant through our parents' lives and our grandparents' lives and so on, that these are, are, are just constructs, that these are just, you know, human constructs and nothing, um, there's no, nothing more than that. It's, and, 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 and stripping back all our kind of perceptions that, 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 that stem from that um, and, and, and really our whole way of seeing the world, it, it, it's kind of, you know, trying to sort of deprogram ourselves in some ways so that we can then, you know, almost become a blank canvas. Um, and, and that's a really, you know, that's a really, tough thing to do there are the pockets in psychology that really excite me are you know things like cognitive behavioral therapy they only really touch the surface but that was very powerful for me as someone who you know used to experience real anxiety and panic attacks and things was for one just becoming an objective spectator to my own feelings and realizing that they weren't necessarily truths but they were stories that I was perpetuating and in fact I had the ability to reclaim that story and write another better story that served me um served me for the long term you know and so i feel like on a on a on an individual level that's super important right is unshackling from these individual stories that we tell ourselves but also the social stories about you know um succeeding for the nine to five and exactly as you said your worth your value as an individual distilling down to the hours that you put in at your shift um so unhooking from a lot of that but i realize as well that that um, comes from a place of enormous privilege because I don't have to walk an unconventional path. And from like a community perspective, I have two very supportive, wacky parents who have always said, you know, you can do whatever you want. You don't have to go to university. You don't have to go and walk, you know, work for a corporate BMS. But I realize that so many young people going through the education system, that is what they're consistently being told, be it by their parents, be it by their communities, their teachers. Um, And so I suppose so much of it does come down to that mindset though. How in your own life have you found yourself unshackling from some of those stories and what has reminded you of what's important or in those times of disruption, what have you kind of drawn back to, to give yourself a little bit more perspective? 
I've suffered as you have from 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 anxiety previously, and 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 you know all kinds of all all kinds of um, issues, I guess. And and I think it all stems from from kind of fear, you know, at some level. And 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 you're right. We 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 tell ourselves all kinds of stories that are unhelpful to each other, and we we, you know, kind of expect the worst in the future. And what you, you know, you realize it is a sort of process of deprogramming that we were talking about before that, that you have to kind of strip back those stories and, and, and tell yourselves new and more helpful ones and I think at a societal level that's kind of kind of where we need to go I, I find that um, you know I have to constantly challenge my own thinking that I, I'm you know I, I, I you know we all come and I me particularly with all kinds of preconceptions about how things work and and and, um, and you have to challenge every every single one of them all the time and you have to keep a kind of um curiosity alive i i i, I think and it gets you know it kind of gets harder to do as you get older i think it's a real challenge to to, 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 to kind of you know get comfortable with change and, and kind of embrace change i suppose that's um, the opportunity of something like the climate crisis right because suddenly the level of perceived loss shifts away from me as an individual, my immediate family, to holy hell, we're looking at the future of our civilization, of every species, of our planet, of whether my children are going to have a future and whether their children will be able to experience the same things that I have in my lifetime. So it can actually be quite an effective lens, obviously, to rally people to action because suddenly the the focus shifts from the comfort of me to okay, but what about the well being of the whole? I, I think you're right to some extent, but I think also that 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 the stories we tell about the climate are are terrifying, mm. right? And they're paralyzing at some level. That that you know we just see this you know monumental risk coming down the track a decade or two ahead um, with no obvious solutions and just you know it 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 it, it really um, it really makes people. Um, you know, on, on the one hand, terrified and either want to hide from it or or it becomes sort of paralyzing. I, th- I think, you know, more and more we're seeing people kind of wanting to take action. But what that action looks like is 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 kind of really, you know, really hard to see. And I think that's, you know, we do ourselves a disservice by focusing on on the fear side too much. Ultimately, you know, the only solution or the only long term solution to, to the climate crisis is, is, is in uh, you know, essentially, the new technologies that, that 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 allow us to use energy without impacting the environment, and and I think that's a you know that's a challenge. And we, we we kind of see energy use as bad, and it's not bad. It's it, it it's you know energy use has been a huge benefit to society. It's it's the carbon emissions or the greenhouse gases that come with energy use that are bad. Mm. So we have a fully decarbonized energy system that is you know cheaper than the existing one and better than the existing one, more resilient and and, and secure than the existing system. You know that's an amazing thing, and we have the we have that on the horizon. I mean, solar now is the lowest cost form of of energy in most parts of the world. And it's just a case of scaling now, and 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 you know we're well on the way. We think we're at the bottom of that S curve. You know, about to fly up it. You'd be mad today to build a coal fired power station, for instance. There's a perception. There's a perception that 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 um you know solar renewables are more expensive mm. than there's a cost to society to transition to clean energy. It's it's nonsense. I mean, there's a cost to keeping coal going. Mm. You know, if you're building coal-fired power stations, you're going to lose a lot of money as an economy or as a society. I mean, there's no doubt about about that now, and and so you 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 know you're building them not for economic reasons, for other reasons. Mm. Um, and so it, it you know it's hugely exciting that these these solutions are there, and I think focusing on the optimism and seeing that path to solving the problem, you know, is 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 hugely beneficial. Mm. I think um, 
you know, we're seeing it in the food system as well, where, where these new ways of producing complex organic molecules, you know, proteins and fats and so on, that, that, that we can produce them through essentially a process of fermentation at a fraction of the cost that you can, you know, get them from animals or, 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 or even plants is, is hugely exciting because it's a, a system that has almost no impact on the environment, mm. uh, very little land use, you know, a free up huge swathes of farmland that you use to grow crops or, you know, pasture land for animals that we can do other things with. We could reforest or we could do all kinds of things with. That can that can help suck um, you, you know greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. So I, th I think that's um, you, know, you know the potential to solve climate change is there, uh, and we we often don't see it. And it's really a case of of, of of getting on and embracing it. My my fear is some of the the solutions we have motivated by that fear, um, like giving up consumption, are actually going to lock us into the old system. They'll 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 tank the economy to such an extent that we have no money, no capital to invest in these new solutions, new solutions, and we'll just be locked in the old, and it'll be a complete disaster. I mean, the, the you know the the future is here to see. I mean, it, it it's there. We're only a decade or two away from a fully decarbonized food system and an energy system and transportation system. You know, the three biggest emitting sectors of the of the economy, and that's that's massively exciting. It really is. Um, but we just don't tend to see it. We focus on the fear. And mm. I, th I think that's, um, you know, for me, that's, you know, that's a mistake. Mm. You raise a really, really important point because it's something that I observe every time I go into Twitter. You know, these incredible thought leaders and super inspiring individuals who are leading change and yet continue to share these super ca catastrophic news stories about what's happening with the crisis. And I recognize the importance of awareness, but in all the research that I've done to date, that imbalance in how we tell this story has detrimental impacts because it perpetuates this dystopia that so many young people are now subscribing to in the wake of protest and in the wake of short-term kind of activism when there isn't a clear path forward and they're asking what next, yeah. you know? And and we need we have a responsibility in the sustainability in, uh, industry in environmentalism in in the spaces of social justice to tell better stories and to craft those narratives and to make available and expose the solutions that are there and these these kind of tipping points and introduce that as a concept as you said to say you know this isn't something of the year 2100 this is something available to us within the next 10 15 20 years but we need individuals to step up with initiative to be able to drive them forward how can we create stories that are better and that serve us better that but also that individuals can project themselves into in yeah. a realistic way i heard um, Elon Musk talking about this a while ago. But what he said was, you know, there's a, a a saying we have in society where there's a will, there's a way. And he said, you know, that's that's wrong. It, it, it's framed the wrong way around. It should be where there's a way, there's a will. Mm. Meaning, if we can see what's possible, you know, we'll find the will to get there. Um, and I think he's absolutely right. I think what we don't have right now in society is is the kind of the positive vision of what's possible. We have a lot of doom and gloom. You know, most of the solutions are somewhat backward looking to let's get back to kind of, mm. how, you know, the, the way we did things when things were better, which, you know, to be honest, are, um, well, I think, make no sense whatsoever. We've got the potential of reaching a, you know, an entirely kind of better and more positive system mm. out into the future. 
but we don't see it. And I think I think if we can paint stories and paint the picture of of kind of what's possible, and also an understanding that it's it's actually achievable, it's going to happen. I mean, mm. we're on the path there already. Mm. This is not something that requires huge intervention. I mean, the market largely will deliver a new energy system, a new food system, a new transport system. The challenge is how do we how do we allow society to cope with the scale of change that's coming? And mm. so, if we can paint that that positive picture, I think I think we'll find you know, the will to get through. It's sort of the light at the end of the tunnel. And I love um, Jonathan Porritt's work for that reason, uh, especially the book that he wrote, The World We Made, which is written from the perspective of two students in the year 2050, looking back at how we solve the climate crisis. And it's done in a really compelling way because it acknowledges what we are going to lose and which is almost kind of inevitable in terms of that widespread disruption in terms of, you know, massive collapse in the food system. Um, But it really highlights the individuals who stepped up to that challenge and decided, made a conscious effort to say, I'm not going to sit idly by and watch this happen. I want to be a custodian of a future by my own making. And I'm going to try and achieve the impossible. Um, I'm going to do what has never been done before. And it's that sort of like radicalism and also that naive optimism, which I feel is such an essential kind of ingredient in this inqu- in, in this equation as we as we move forward. I would love to hear more, you know, examples um, or thought provocations around how to develop solutions that really meet people's needs and that place people at the center. Because again, so many of the solutions currently presented to us um, are faulty because they're based on the premise of behavior change. Um, it's based on you know people going out of their way to change behavior. And it's a, it's a very kind of um, myopic way of thinking about the problems and the solutions. What I love about you know companies like Impossible Foods is that you know, when we were working in the marketing department, at no point did we say we're going to call this like a vegetarian product or a vegan product. It, it carries too much baggage. And it, it suggests that we're trying to prescribe a different way of living and existing and consuming. We want to meet people where they already are with a product that is just as good, if not tastier, um, that also makes them feel really good because they see that it's a fraction of the environmental impact. And we see how incredible those kind of solutions are and their ability to disrupt in a very positive way on the wider kind of picture. So what are some of the kind of stories, solutions that you've also seen that encompass that where we're where meeting people in a way that isn't about, you know, um, giving things up, but it speaks to improving your well-being, your state of mind. Uh, and it's very much like an invitation rather than a sacrifice. Yeah. There are businesses across the board that are that are doing this. I mean, Impossible have you know been a great example. They've scaled unbelievably quickly, and they're you know they're producing something that's essentially indistinguishable from from you know the the the, the sort of animal based alternative. You know that process is well underway, and we're seeing it across you know all kinds of other areas of the food system and across uh, you know all kinds of materials. We're seeing clothing you know produced in this way. We're seeing you know people making palm oil, for instance, mm. or at least the active ingredients. You know you can make. Um, you know the cannabidols from from the cannabis plant in this way, and so you don't need to produce a whole plant; you just produce the active ingredient, right? Mm-hmm. So there, there are, um, the, you know, there's incredible promise um, in these in in these new technologies to kind of solve almost any environmental problem we want, and you know it's here, it's happening. But over time, as the cost gets low, it will replace every kind of organic molecule, and we we won't produce anything, you know, through the traditional kind of breakdown or extraction method of production and so um 
you know, the challenge really is, is how can we accelerate this? How can we, how can we, you know, if there are really pressing issues like palm oil or whatever it might be, you know, can we accelerate the production of these mm-hmm. things? You know, i.e. make them competitive before, you know, they, you know, the market would, would deliver the solution. So can we, you know, can you produce synthetic palm oil? You know, what can we do to kind of accelerate some of these solutions, you know, bring them bring them forward in the timeline? And I think there's tons that can be done. I mean, mm. we just have to identify it. But, you know, most people aren't aware of these solutions and, and, and aren't aware of, you know, how close they are to, to, to hitting the market. And there's almost nothing that's, that's kind of unsolvable. Now, it sounds like this is a kind of techno utopia at some level, but it's not. I mean, these, 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 you know, these technologies are here and they're ready. Mm. Um, and it's now just a case of getting them out into the market and scaling them. And critically, it's about where the vested interest lies, right? I think any of these technologies can very easily be um, appropriated by individuals if you're looking at them from a very top-down approach that is still embedded in this sort of like dominion mindset about controlling people and controlling that supply chain. But if you flip that equation to, as you were saying earlier, it coming from the ground up and it being an emergent and the very people who are developing the solutions are also um, the beneficiaries of those solutions, then it completely changes that entire kind of landscape in a really exciting way. It does. And it's, you know, it's super exciting. I mean, that you know, if you think of materials that, that we can produce you know, in this in in this manner now, biologically, essentially, um, you know, if we if we run that system through our old system of IP rights and so on, it's going to look. You're going to have an industry that looks like the sort of pharmaceutical industry, where the you know huge development costs, huge approval timeframes. You know, the regulations will will kind of restrict and hold back the market, and and impose you know enormous costs on the system. It doesn't have to be like that. This is not like um, pharmaceuticals. So there's huge cost to drug discovery and testing and, and so on and so forth. You know, you have school children developing molecules now and the mm-hmm. science projects and so on. the costs are plummeting. It's 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 becoming super cheap. You know, almost free to to, to, to develop a new a, 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 a new molecule that could be used in, in in you know whatever way you want it to be used. Um, and so if we have a, a much more kind of open source system, a much kind of freer system, um, and, and we remove some of the regulatory barriers, then suddenly you have a system that can just explode and you have a system that, that's much more broadly shared and, 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 and so on. And that's, uh, you know, that's the challenge is how do we get the old, you know, stop the old system killing this new system? Mm. Um, because there's a real risk that that happens, but, um, but there's also an enormous opportunity there as well. Absolutely. And I realize that a lot of this can seem very theoretical. Um, what would your invitation be to people who want to begin solving for the problems that they care about really deeply? Um, part of the work that we do in classrooms, which is the most essential kind of part of the formula, is helping young people distill down to the problems that they want to see solved. Because we have a tendency to kind of like spread ourselves thin across lots of different causes. And, but ultimately, as you well know, you know, impact comes from focus. It's it's drilling really, really deep, understanding everything that you can, going into it with a lot of humility, asking many questions, maintaining that curiosity. Um, what would your invitation be for people as they begin to step up to the challenges in terms of how to adopt a sort of holistic systemic mindset um, and think through this lens of possibility and learn to love the problem rather than the solution? We need you know, many more of these kind of scenarios depicting 
you know what's possible it needs to be much clearer to people you know what is happening in the in the kind of technological the industrial space how that system is changing and 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 and, and that information is just not available because often those you know the solutions to what seems like an intractable problem is actually on the horizon and 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 it's not a a problem that needs you know, widespread behavior change or regulation or whatever kind of suite of solutions that we, you know, we've used in the old system. It's actually, it's, it's actually about a whole new mm. um, system that's going to emerge anyway. It's yeah. not about, you know, it's not about, um, you know, reductionism and, you know, individual parts and silos is about connections essentially mm. and I think that's a, that's really the challenge that we face and and human connections and becoming intimate with the very real human impacts of these problems on people's lives there's something that um, I was speaking to Anna Jones of Refuge Age um, about on the podcast because she was talking about the failure of big incumbent organizations like the UN um, in trying to solve you know the refugee crisis because so much of their own bureaucracy kind of got in the way but in the case of Anna just actually being on the ground at the time in Lesbos and asking people who were arriving what they needed whether it was you know shoes or clothes or um, you know a wi-fi connection to be able to connect with their families and then extending that further what they needed once they were here assimilating in the UK to to feel stable and secure just having those conversations is what enabled them to create real legitimate impact and I think it's what we can kind of forget in this equation is you need to become intimate and you need to be okay with asking lots of questions and, and not knowing the answer to most things as you set out in trying to in trying to deal with complexity and these kind of challenges and overwhelm and all of the baggage that that comes with. Yeah, I mean, you just nailed it. I mean, that's exactly the that's exactly the issue. You know, we and you know the whole industrial age in some ways has been about the individual. You know, the, the individual rights, one of the mm. key concepts that underpin democracy and capitalism, private ownership of property. I mean, these mm. are all about the individual. But actually, the connection between individuals is even more important. I mean, mm. none of us are, are isolated. None of us operate in a silo. And so, if we pivot to being a little bit psycho spiritual for a second, we're both part of an inquiry into energy consciousness and technology um have you had any breakthroughs in thinking uh <laughs> so far no pressure <laughs> I, I i wouldn't say breakthroughs the act of thinking happens unconsciously mainly that that you you know expose yourself to ideas and expose yourself to information and you just kind of let it settle i'm at the point now where you know i'm kind of piling in information and ideas and 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 you know it all looks very cloudy mm. right now but it's um you know that's not frightening that's um that's to be embraced and you just have to let it settle and the clarity will come eventually well i think we're also as humans we're great pattern recognizers and my greatest kind of like breakthroughs in thinking are when I'm consistently downloading information over a long time, usually years, and then suddenly you you identify the trend and you're like, well, this person said that thing to me or that person gave me that bit of advice. And now it makes total sense like where the synergies are. It's the nature of kind of peeling back the layers and peeling back the layers and again, getting that kind of like depth of focus that we were talking about. Um, because when I first came into the world of climate change, it was very much as like a... a a self-proclaimed environmentalist and it was all about environmental justice and I used to get asked you know well do you care more about you know people or the environment and back then I actually had an answer for that I said well I'm motivated by the environment and yet obviously 
now at this point, it's like, okay, well, they're so inextricably connected that you can't separate out any one problem, nor can you separate out any one solution. It's understanding the relationships more than the parts themselves, which is so exciting and which creates those kind of glimpses um, of insight and foresight. Um, And so in line with that, I mean, um, I would love to hear more about this report and what some of the kind of like top level themes are. Um, and then, yeah, how this inquiry that you guys have been on at Rethink X has perhaps evolved your thinking or how it's going to propel you into the future and change the way in which you look at these problems. It's really kind of looking through our framework at um – you know, how the world might develop, you know, 20, 30, 40 years into the future. So it's very high level, but it's also looking back, you know, 10,000 years and more to, you know, through the history of civilizations really to understand, you know, how the system we're in today has kind of emerged and evolved and what that might mean, you know, what we can learn from the lessons of history and past civilizations about, about you know, where, where, we might going in, where we might be going in the future. So we start at a kind of sector level of the economy and we look at, you know, how sectors have, have, have been disrupted uh, over time, how, how, you know, the car replaced the horse and how it happened very quickly and how there were incredible implications across society. If you look back in history, occasionally you have you have changes that, that actually require a whole new organizing system. So you look back to you know, Sumerian civilization or Babylonian, Egyptian, Roman, and so on. You know, each each civilization represents almost an order of magnitude increase in in, in our capabilities. So you start off with cities of ten thousand, and the next civilization gets to a hundred thousand. You know, Rome hit. Uh, a million, and now you know we're in in the tens of millions, and 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 you get this kind of you know this step change increase, but the the organizing system that supported a previous civilization is not capable of managing society when you have an entirely different production system that's operating at much greater scale. And I think so. You know, when we look at where we are today, we see a you know an industrial age organizing system, you know, essentially governing and managing society. Um. And, and it's done an incredible job over the last 200 or so years. It's allowed us to develop extraordinary capabilities. But what we're seeing now, and, and you know, certainly in, in the information sector, which is a sort of, the, I guess, the leading edge of, the, um, of, of a new system that might be emerging, is an entirely new system. You know, the information revolution of the last you know, two or three decades has, has changed the structure, this centralized system that we've had where, you know, a few newspapers or a few TV stations or a few, you know, radio shows or whatever have, have kind of acted as this kind of central conduit for information sharing, um, being replaced by one where anyone can kind of produce and consume media, um, you know, at almost zero cost. And, 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 and that's transformed the model. And our, you know, our, essentially our organizing system can't cope with that anymore we can't govern that we can't i mean how do you regulate facebook how do you regulate google through our, our old governance structure you can't do it at a national level it just doesn't it doesn't it doesn't work mm. and we're seeing problems now with that information system in terms of you know the democratic process the ability to kind of corrupt the process of democracy but also with the ability to influence how people vote and so on that, that, that actually you know these these things are coming into conflict now this new uh, information system is not well matched to our kind of our system of you know regulating governing and and and, and, and organizing and we're going to see the same thing happen with the energy system and the food system and the transport system as they completely decentralize in the same way 
and and we have much more you know localized localized production and uh, you know we think that the that this industrial age system is is essentially going to stop functioning um, before too long and the the challenge for us really uh, as a society is how do we how do we enable that system to emerge w- without a breakdown of our organizing structures that the leaders you know essentially dropping back into a, a new dark age thanks so much for listening to this force of nature podcast with james arbib you can learn more about james and rethink x in the show notes we want to hear your questions aha moments musings and of course we want to know how you plan to rethink the system ahead of our next season of the force of nature podcast Force of Nature is edited by Kazra Ferruzia, produced by James Bishop of One Fine Play, and would not be as good as it is without the wisdom of my mum, Janet Hogan. You can find me at Clover Hogan on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and stay in the loop with Force of Nature on all the same channels at forceofnature.xyz, including TikTok. Don't forget to subscribe and go check out our videos on YouTube. See you next time.